As we are regathering and resettling ourselves, uh, let's go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25 as we continue working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're coming close to the end. It ends with chapter 28. So we have a few more weeks left in that. Uh, but since we have a, the four weeks of Advent here starting today, uh, we'll be doing a Christmas message uh, <clears throat> in a couple of weeks and then uh, New Year's and then we'll... Uh, Finish up Matthew right after the new year. Also, just want to, I forgot to mention this earlier. Isn't this beautiful? We had some folks come out yesterday and help decorate, and we're so grateful for that. And just, uh, you know, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, why do we do these things? The, um, in the Old Testament, there were seven feasts that Israel observed. And at each of those feasts, when they celebrated them, they decorated because those feasts each had a significance and a meaning. And in like manner for us as we come to uh, seasons for us like Christmas and for Easter, which we know a lot of that has its roots in paganism, you know, we don't have to observe the paganism portion of what they do. It's an occasion for us to remember our Lord, you know, and, and red reminds us of, of his blood, you know, and, uh, you know, we put the star up on the cross there just to remind us that the Lord lit the way and he led people to the Messiah even at his birth. And so uh, we're just grateful to have a little change of scenery, uh, liven things up a little bit. And so thank you uh, for those faithful servants who came out and helped yesterday and, and did all of this. We are so grateful for that. So turn in your Bibles again, Matthew 25, and we will continue uh, in our study. We are going to read this morning. Uh, I've got the whole passage I was going to teach down to verse 30 listed, but I think we'll just read down to verse 13. But we are going to look at the parable of the, uh, the wise and the foolish virgins and then the parable of the talents this morning. So let me begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, do not, um, the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know, let's, let's keep reading. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, uh, and to another one, to each according to his own ability." And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received 
the five talents, went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Therefore, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance." But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we trust that you will teach us and you will give us understanding this morning as we read your word and as we seek to not only understand it, but to apply it to our own lives and to our own situation, to our own time. And so, Lord, would you minister to us, for this is the word of the Lord. And may our hearts and ears and minds and spirits be attentive to all that you have to speak to your church this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To refresh where we are, just to zoom out for a moment, we are in Passion Week. A, few day, a couple of days earlier from this point where Jesus is speaking these words, he had ridden the donkey into Jerusalem. It's the, the day we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. And then each day he went out of the city uh, to stay with his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and then came back into the city and ministered and spoke. And now we are in a portion called the Olivet Discourse. That's what we've named it. But uh, during the the sequence of events, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives uh, just a day before he was crucified with his disciples. And this is after he had been interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. And in chapter 23, we had looked at Jesus dealing directly with the scribes and the Pharisees and the harsh nature in which he spoke with them because of their hypocrisy and how they were not there really to help people find God, but rather they were there to uh, enslave people, to bring them into bondage uh, to religion. And remember, religion is man's attempt to reach God. Religion is always built around 
um, rules and regulations and legalism and those kinds of things. But what we are talking about, and it will become abundantly clear today in the passage we are looking at, is relationship, not religion. Relationship with Jesus. And so in chapter 24, we looked at Jesus speaking about from the time he was speaking there in AD 32 to his disciples until the time that he called the end of the age, which would be the time of his second coming, at the end of the time of the tribulation. And so we spent two weeks looking at chapter 4, looking at what Jesus had to say about the time of the tribulation. And then last week, because the rapture of the church is not specifically talked about here uh, within this discourse that Jesus gave, we took a week and we looked at specifically the rapture of the church just to kind of put it into its prophetic context in light of what Jesus has been saying here. And then as he continues, remember as Jesus did this, he just kind of continuously, you know, went on and just kept speaking to his disciples. And there was no chapter breaks and no little paragraph headings that we have in our Bibles. So as he was there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he had spoken what we have recorded as uh, chapter 24, he just continued on and rolled right into chapter 25. And so Jesus is speaking again about the time of all the things that would happen from the time that he was there on the earth with them. He hadn't yet been crucified. And then he was looking all the way down through the annals of time, 2,000 plus years, because we're 2,000 years down the road, right, from the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he was looking down the prophetic timeline to the time when the, the tribulation would come. And he was also looking at the things that would happen along the way. And today we find sort of a a shadowing of the church as we read about this parable of the ten virgins. And I believe this parable of the ten virgins, as we are about to read it again right now, speaks to us uh, about the church being ready for the rapture. But it also speaks about those who will one day be uh, getting saved and living through the time of the tribulation. The church will, of course, be in heaven with the Lord, but there will be other people, primarily Jews, but there will also be Gentiles during the time of the tribulation who come to faith in Christ. And during that time, as they are leading up to the time of the end of the tribulation, marked by the uh, a seven-year period of time, in the middle of that, that seven years, three and a half years, we've been talking about this, the, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, where the Antichrist who makes a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and who sort of makes a covenant with the world in a sense, now goes in and violates that. The temple has been rebuilt. The daily sacrifices and temple worship has been restored Uh, for the time of the tribulation to begin. And three and a half years in, he walks into the temple. He's not a priest. He's not a religious man. But he walks into the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the sacrifices are made, where the mercy seat is, and where on the day of atonement, the priest would go in and sacrifice to the Lord and kill the blood of the innocent lamb. They kill the lamb and sprinkle its blood on the top of the mercy seat. He will go into that place And he will declare at that moment that he is God and that he is to be worshipped. And that all of the world should turn their eyes and their hearts toward him and worship him and him alone. He will declare himself to be the one true God. And in that moment, when the abomination of desolation takes place, 
all hell will literally break loose on the earth. We'll already be three and a half years into the time of the tribulation. Uh, the, the first two judgments or se- sequences of judgments that God has been pouring out on the earth will have happened. But now as he, he does this, he unleashes the full fury and wrath of God upon the earth. And it will be a time of literally hell on earth. And as people are coming to Christ during this time, because there are the two witnesses there during the first half of the tribulation, whom we believe to be most likely Moses and Elijah, although we are never told specifically who they are. And they will witness before the entire world. Our technology is certainly to the place that that can happen, right? We can be at any point on this planet. And through technology, we can see what's happening by the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem at any given moment. In fact, there are cameras there you can log into right now and see what's happening in that location. And these two witnesses will witness to the world. And then God himself will ordain and send out 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 12 times 12, 144,000. And they will blanket the earth, preaching the gospel first to the Jew and secondarily to the Gentile. For the express purpose of God fulfilling his promises in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, where he said, I'm not done with, with Israel, my servant. I'm still calling them back to myself. And as he does that, people will come to know him. But it will be a terrible time, a difficult time to be a believer in Christ during those days, during the time of the tribulation. And so in light of all this, Jesus, as he continues to express these parables to us, we come to this parable. And remember, parables are a a spiritual truth, a heavenly truth cast alongside an earthly reality to, to illustrate that heavenly or that spiritual truth. And so he gives us what is labeled here the parable of the foolish or the the wise virgins or the parable of the ten virgins. So in Matthew chapter 25, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps." We need to remind ourselves, of course, of what a Jewish wedding is all about. In that culture and in those days, as is still true in many parts of the world, uh, marriages were arranged. There was an espousal made between the fathers of two families. Hey, I have a son, you have a daughter. Uh, They're the same age. We should link up our resources, and we should join together as families. And so when those children are old enough, when they're of age, that they can get married, we should have them get married and continue on our family traditions. And so it it would be arranged pretty much from birth or certainly from early childhood. And so all those years would pass, and then the time of the wedding would come. And what would happen is at that point when the it would be declared that the, the groom is ready. And so there would be a one-year waiting period for the, the bride to come, excuse me, for the groom to come for his bride. And at the end of that one year, you wouldn't know the day or the hour that the groom would choose to come. But we also have to remind ourselves that the Jewish day began at sundown. So it was from sundown to sundown. So those are all elements that we need to consider as we think about what's being said here today. 
And so when there was a Jewish wedding, there would be the groom, there would be the bride, there would be the father of the groom, and the groom would be uh, spending that year preparing a place for his bride. He would be adding on to his father's house, and thus Jesus said in John 14, you know, in my father's house are many dwelling places, and I go in to prepare a place for you. That's a foreshadowing of what he's talking about here in this parable. But there would also be, in addition to the bride and the groom and the father of the groom and the place that the groom is preparing, there would also be the wedding party. And this thing about 10 virgins, there's no magic to the number 10, but wedding parties in that day would often be large. And so it would be common to have something like 10 uh, virgins or 10 bridesmaids who were a part of the wedding procession. So it's interesting that when the groom would come, which typically would, he could come at any hour of the day or night. And a lot of times he chose to make it a surprise. And so he would come during the night when people were sleeping to surprise them and say, hey, it's 2 a.m., let's get up and have a wedding and let's have a party and let's get this thing going. This was a common thing in their culture and they understood it. And so in that context, it says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. See, the bride was in her chamber and the bridesmaids would go out to meet the groom as he came with his procession. And then they would come and lead the groom in with their lamps, or in this case, actually the word is, it says lamps, but the, the word is torches. And they would come and sort of form a hallway of light so that the groom could come in to his bride and come and take his bride and receive her. Then they would go out and they would have the wedding and get married. And then they would go into the, the place that he had prepared for his, uh, at his father's house for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, they would come out. So the, all of this is a picture. If you were here last week, if you weren't, you can uh, listen to the tape. And I also have handouts available if you want them. But this is all kind of a picture, right, of Jesus comes and he gets his bride. And then he goes back for seven days, in this case, seven years, with his bride, and he waits until it's time for him to come out and present his bride to the world. And Jesus will do that at the end of the the time of the tribulation when he comes back. He will come back with his bride. We talked about all of this last week. But here we are focused on these virgins, on the wedding party themselves. What was their role? What were they doing? And remember, it's a parable. It's a story. It's a likeness to a heavenly truth. So the ten virgins, they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. So the idea is they had their torch or their lamp, whatever it was. And as they were were getting ready for the bridegroom to come, knowing that he could come at any moment, they had, as it were, sort of a, a, a side flask of oil on them. And so at, during the night hours, because they had to be ready, they had their lamps lit. But if their lamps, of course, were consuming the oil, consuming the fuel, so they had spare on hand at all times. And so that's the picture we're given here. And it says five of these ten were wise and that they were always prepared and they always had spare oil with them. And five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, their vessel being their their flask or their, their little container that they had the oil in. Now, in many biblical passages, oil is an emblem of the Holy Spirit. 
We find this in many places. One place in particular, if you want to look at it, is in Zechariah chapter 4. And without oil, the wedding party was not ready for the bridegroom. And in like manner for us, without the Holy Spirit, no one is ready for the return of Jesus. Now we know when a person comes to Christ by faith and they believe in him, the scriptures are abundantly clear, the book of Ephesians and many other places, that the Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives, comes to dwell in our hearts through faith. So any believer, any true believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit living within him or her. We know this is true. But there's also the filling of the Holy Spirit. So let me just paint the picture here for you for a moment. Oil is a good representation of the Holy Spirit for many reasons. And this is just looking at different ideas behind the filling of the Spirit and the oil as an emblem or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Oil lubricates uh, when it's used for that purpose. And there is little friction and wear among those who are lubricated by the Spirit of God. Isn't this true when people are walking in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit? There's an absence of conflict and difficulty among the believers in the body of Christ. Oil heals, and it was used as a medicinal treatment in biblical times. The Spirit of God brings healing and restoration. When we come to know Christ and when the Spirit of God comes to enter us, He brings peace where there was no peace. He brings wisdom and understanding where there was none, and he is able and he alone to heal us from our past traumas, our past experiences. Oil lights when it is burned in a lamp, and where the Spirit of God is, there is light. Oil warms when it is used as fuel for a flame, and where the Spirit of God is, there is warmth and comfort. Oil invigorates when it is used to massage. You know, indeed, many therapists today, if they're working on you in physical therapy or massage therapy, they use oil to help that process so that they can work and go deep. The oil invigorates when used to massage, and the Holy Spirit invigorates us for His service. He restores. Oil adorns when applied as a perfume, and the Holy Spirit adorns us and makes us more pleasant to be around. Isn't this true when we're filled with God's Spirit? People want to be around us when we're walking in the flesh. Nobody wants to be around us. Oil polishes when used to shine, uh, or when to shine, excuse me, when used to shine metal. And the Holy Spirit wipes away our grime and smooths out our rough edges. These are just some ideas behind the idea of the Holy Spirit. As a, where oil is used as a type of the Holy Spirit. And certainly these uh, bridesmaids, these virgins, they had their lamps and they had oil. But while the bridegroom was delayed, verse 5, they all slumbered and slept. So the wise and the foolish both slumbered and slept. Nobody can stay awake forever in the sense of sleep versus awake. But the idea here in this parable is readiness and preparedness for the opportunity that is about to be presented to us. And it says in verse 6 that at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And this would be the way the wedding would begin. 
Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. Now, if you've ever used, for example, a, a hurricane or a storm lamp in your house when the power goes out, you know that if, if you light it and you just let it keep burning, you have to mess with the wick a little bit. You have to turn it up and sometimes you have to trim off the excess so that it can burn brightly. And so they arose quickly and they trimmed their lamps in verse 7. And the foolish, the ones who didn't have oil, said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. You see, they were not prepared. Now it's interesting to understand this word used here for foolish. The Greek word is moros, from which we get our word moron. And it literally means stupid. And it is the designation for those who are carelessly unprepared. And so there is a a contrast being set up here in this parable for us. The wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us, but you go rather to those who sell oil and buy for yourselves. And so they went out to buy. So the bride, the call has already been made. Hey, the bridegroom's coming. His coming is imminent. He's on his way. He's en route. And so they ran down the street to buy oil, and while they were away, uh, the bridegroom came, he arrived, and those who were ready, there's the point in verse 10, went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Now listen to this, if the oil represents personal possession of the Holy Spirit, he cannot be shared, but he must come in individually to each person's life to regenerate, to bring hope. Thus the Lord responds, I do not know you, as he will say here in just a moment. You see, he didn't know them in the most intimate sense of the word because they did not have a relationship with him. And the implication here is that those who know the Lord are watching for his coming. They are ready for his coming. They are like the wise virgins who had oil, And if we wanted to draw a parallel with this, we would have to say that those who have the Holy Spirit of God, who are true believers, the Spirit of God lives within them. And I don't believe this is denoting, you know, the Spirit-filled believer versus an unspirit-filled believer because both know the Lord, the Spirit dwells within them. But he's talking about those who are ready. And if we know the Lord and the Spirit of God lives within us, then, then there should be this sense. And, and, and by the way, if, if prior to this moment you don't have this sense, then in this moment, uh, take a moment to, to gather it unto yourself. That we are to be ready at all times for the Lord's return. We are to be prepared. You know, think about when you've invited people to come over to your home. We just had a, a holiday Thanksgiving you know, a lot of times people say, well, we're going to eat sometime between two and four, so just show up anytime afternoon. Well, those guests can arrive whenever, right? Anytime between 12 and, and, and two. And the idea is, maybe you didn't tell them, I want you to show up precisely at 1 p.m. And you know how it is, there's traffic, things delay us. The idea is, you don't know exactly when they're going to arrive, but you know that they're coming. And the idea is with our Lord here, that he is coming. And since we are at this point in church history where our Lord has not yet returned for his church, for his bride, we especially should be ready. The next thing on the prophetic calendar for us 
is that Jesus returns for his church. Now, if you were in the time of the tribulation, the church has been taken out. And you're reading this. The next thing on the prophetic calendar for you is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the time of the tribulation. You see, this has a double uh, relevance to those reading from this point in history forward to when Jesus comes back. The next thing is the return for his church. And the next thing after that is the return for his people at the end of the time of the tribulation. And afterwards, it says, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. These are the ones who went away to buy oil because their their lamp had gone out. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore for you. This is Jesus speaking now. He's wrapping up the parable. Watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The word watch means to watch. It means to stay awake. It means to be alert. You know, in Ephesians 5.18, there's a familiar verse. And it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the literal tenses of the language there in the original says, be ye continually being filled. In other words, it's sort of like you're hooked up to a garden hose and the, the faucet is on. And if you've ever done this, maybe you've put something in the sink, a pot or, or that's dirty and you're going to run some water in it just to kind of soak it before you clean it. And you turn the water on and you walk away and then the water fills up the pot and then it just spills over the edges. Maybe you forgot it for five minutes and the water's just sitting there spilling over and running down the drain. That's a picture of Ephesians 5.18. Be ye continually being filled. In other words, we are to be in a place in our lives and our walk with God and our awareness of the presence of the Lord with us at all times. That the Spirit of God is, is filling us and overflowing us and helping us to be aware and to remember and to be ready. Watch, therefore, for you do not know uh, the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And the point, so that we don't miss it, of the parable of these virgins is this, readiness, preparedness for the opportunity that's about to be presented to us, to be with the Lord. Now, he goes on and emphasizes Uh, sort of a different aspect of this in this next parable, the parable of the talents beginning in verse 14. So if the parable of the virgins is talking about readiness and preparedness as we read this next parable, it's talking to us about faithfulness and bearing fruit. So let's read it. For the kingdom of heaven, verse 14, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability, and and immediately he went on a journey. So the idea here we are to have as we read this parable is this. Again, this was a common thing that happened. A a landowner, you know, who had many servants, who had much much land and, and, you know, many crops. Maybe he had uh, fruits and vegetables. Maybe on another part he had a vineyard. Uh, he would be going away to do business somewhere to trade and, and to buy and to sell. And as he went away on these long trips, he would give sums of money to different servants within his household. And as he gave those servants gifts, uh, in this case talents, 
A talent was a weight or a measure. And actually, a talent was equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. So let that sort of sink in for a moment. To one, he gave five talents. Five times 20 is 100. That's 100 years worth of wages. Okay, that's, that's crazy, isn't it? That's wealth. To another was given two talents, two times 20, 40 years of wage. And to another was given one talent or 20 years of wage. And notice in verse 15, as we read that again, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and underline this, to each according to his own ability. That's key to the understanding of this parable. And immediately he went on a journey. So in this parable, which again is a, illustrating a heavenly truth, a spiritual truth to us, as he's saying this here, he, he's letting us know that, that people have different abilities. And certainly we know this in the work world, don't we? There are some who are capable of certain things, and I know that I can't, I, you know, if I'm a manager, I can only give certain things to certain people. I can't give the hardest or the most demanding tasks or opportunities uh, to certain people. I have to give them to other people. And so this is the idea here. The master, the Lord, as he distributes those talents, those wages, a hundred years worth of wage, a 40 years worth of wage, 20 years worth of wage to these people, he's done it according to their ability. And so the master has determined what the ability level is of the people to whom he is distributing. And so in a higher sense, a talent can be viewed as what God has given to us. If we are putting this more specifically in a New Testament context, we know that God has given each of his children, those who have the Spirit of God and who belong to him, we've each been given gifts. And as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we understand about these gifts. We read in, in Romans chapter 12, there are lists of gifts. In fact, as you get to the book of 1 Peter, Peter says, God has granted each one something to be used, and that, those, that something should be used to minister on behalf of the Lord. And so we need to understand it's not so much the portion, but it's the proportion that matters. Because what God gives to each one of us is what God has given to each one of us. And there's something very important for us to understand here. We are not to be looking at what God has given to someone else and longing for or coveting that something. Now let me give you a very real example that exists in the world of pastors. You know, every church is a different size. Every church has something different going on in it. And most of you here didn't know or don't know Pastor Derek, who was the founder of this church back in 2001. But when the Lord called him back after having established this church for about six years, called him back to where he came from, which was Calvary Chapel of Las Vegas, we didn't know at the time that his pastor who, called, who had sent him out and called him back, and by the way, the reason this church got established is Pastor John, who was the pastor of that church, the founding pastor in Las Vegas, was a native of the Boston-Nashua area. And so he had had a vision on his heart for many years to send someone out here to plant a church, and that's ultimately how this church got planted. 
So Pastor Derek got called to go back, and that, of course, was a very flourishing church at the time. was probably around 3,000 people there in the city of Las Vegas, you can imagine. A church right there at the gates of hell. So Pastor Derek goes back there, and little did we know that within about a year and a half of when he returned, Pastor John died of cancer. Now, he was called back there. Pastor John was looking at things. He was in his 60s, and he said, you know, I want to go to the next chapter that God has for me, and I want to turn it over to Pastor Derek. He's a faithful man, and he's the God I believe, the, the man I believe God has directed my heart to turn the church over to. Well, Pastor Derek here now, 15 years later, because Pastor Derek turned the church over to me, what he's done, what God has given him there in terms of resources, they're, they're busting at the seams. Their ministry is now, they're over 5,000 people. I mean, I mean, this isn't about numbers, but this is about souls. And so I can't look at him and say, woe is me, I'm all depressed because my church doesn't look like Pastor Derek's church. Well, my church is not in Las Vegas, right? We're in Manch Vegas here, right? I, I, I think that's, I saw that sign somewhere. But the idea is we don't look at what God's given to someone else. We have to be faithful with what God's given to us. I think about it sometimes, you know, because I've gone out to visit him and we talk and we're still in communication. If God had given that to me, I probably would have blown it up. But Pastor Derek, if you knew him, if you know him, I mean, he's got capacity. God has blessed him. He has a spiritual capacity. He has a vision for things that go way beyond any vision that I have. And so God has given him five talents. He's given me one. Praise God. That's okay. Because God is the one who distributes, right? The landowner, the Lord in this parable is the one who distributed to each one according to their ability. And so each one of us, sometimes we, we become, you know, we look at one another and we think, boy, they can sing and dance and they're artistic and I have no skills. I can barely draw a square box on a piece of paper. And we start to evaluate and compare ourselves to one another. Listen, God has given to each one of us gifts and talents and abilities. And he's given to us according to our ability. Now, what does he expect? He expects us to use what he's given us for his purposes. Let's go on now. The one who had received, verse 16, five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. He had been awarded five talents or a hundred years worth of wage according to his ability. And he invested it and he traded with it and he got more, he doubled it. And likewise, he who had received Two gained two more also, but he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now, the idea here is there's a picture. The picture is Jesus has now uh, left. He's, he's been resurrected into, into heaven and, and received up and ascended. And now he's distributed to his church gifts. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So those who had received five talents came and brought five other talents and saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, and we love these words, don't we? Well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful over a few things. Listen to this. You were faithful over a few things. A few to him 
was five talents. And I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. Two was a few to him. And I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, what can we say about these two servants? First of all, they did their work promptly when their Lord had entrusted the the gift to them. They got busy and they did their work promptly. They did their work with perseverance and they did their work with success that God blessed the increase of their work and they were ready to give an account when their master returned. So they were ready. And he says to each of these first two, he says, well done. And that's a commendation. That's a statement of blessing. I mean, that's what you want to hear, right? From your Lord, well done. And he says, well done, good and faithful servants. You know, that as soon as I hear the word good, when it's applied to a person, I can't help but think of back in Matthew 19 when we had studied uh, about the rich young ruler. And just to read a couple of verses to you. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what, shall, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. And here the Lord is saying to his servants, well done, good and faithful servant. If Jesus says, hey, you're calling me good, and I'm God. If the Lord can look at us and look at any one of us and say good and faithful to us, then certainly there is something of the Lord. There's a mark of the Lord in us and and upon us. But he says good and faithful. I want to spend a moment looking at this issue of faithfulness because this is where we we fail. This is where we falter in our lives. Well done, good and faithful servant. What is faithfulness in the life of a believer? What does faithful look look like in the life of a person? Faithful means someone who's trustworthy, who's honorable, who has integrity in their lives. Certainly we can see that in the lives of these two servants. One being given the 100 years worth of wage, one being given the 40 These are people who can be relied upon. They were dependable. Remember it says there in the parable that they were given according to their ability. Well, their ability also takes into account their character. So one who is worthy of putting your hope or your confidence in. So the Lord giving them something saying, I think this guy or this person, this woman is going to do something with this. And so with this one. And the Lord gives those gifts, those talents, the blessing of the wages in that respect, according to the parable, so that they would use them for his glory. A faithful person is one who promises and holds to their word. Now, we all all long for these kinds of people, right? Listen to this. This is a person that you don't have to sit down and have a conversation with about expectations, 
They are just there. They get it. They're dependable. They're trustworthy. Don't we know people like that? You give them something to do. You don't even have to explain it. They're like, yep, I got it. And they turn around and they give it to you and it's done. And it's amazing. It's done with, with a vigor. It's, it's done. It's right. It's proper. It's amazing. But then there are those people, right? Every single time you have to explain it to them. It drives you crazy. This person, this faithful person, is a person who is true, who is honest, who is reliable, who is dependable. Now, God is faithful, isn't he? We've we've sung about it this morning. God is faithful. And we are to take on this quality of our Lord. You see, having faith in God produces faithfulness in us. So the question, as we think about this this morning, is am I and are you, because I preach as much to myself, trust me, as I do to anyone else. Am I and are you this kind of person? Can the Lord look at me? Can he look at you and can, you, can he say, that's a faithful person? Faithfulness to the Lord is sorely lacking in the church today, isn't it? Where is the faithfulness? Listen to a few scriptures here. I want to take a moment and go through these. Luke chapter 16. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. See, faithful in the little things. There's a verse in the Old Testament, I believe it's in the book of Isaiah, and it says, the little foxes spoil the vine. You see, we need to be faithful in the small things. And he says here, Luke 16.10 is what I read to you, Luke 16.11. Therefore, Jesus speaking, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? It's not money. It's the gospel. It's the kingdom of God. It's the souls of people. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, this, this is what clouds our judgment and, and dilutes our faithfulness, isn't it? Because we have duplicity in our hearts, and we want the best of both worlds. Along the idea of the topic of faithfulness, Acts chapter 16, this is where Paul and his entourage had been led by the Holy Spirit to go to Macedonia. They ended up in Philippi. They went there and they're looking for a place to preach the gospel. And now a certain woman named Lydia heard us as they preached the gospel there by the river when they got to uh, that city. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now listen, and when she and her household were baptized... And remember, this woman just got saved. She begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Man, this woman just got saved. But apparently the mark of the Holy Spirit was upon her. And she uttered these words to Paul. And Paul's like, yeah, I can see it. There's faithfulness in your life. This woman just got saved. But she was a faithful person. Paul could see that quality in her life. 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You see, we are stewards of the things that God has given to us. Now, what has God given to us? Let's just start with the simple. Isn't it everything? Isn't it breath? Isn't it life? Isn't it whatever you have in your bank account at the moment, the cars you drive, the house you live in, the clothes you wear? Doesn't, doesn't he say in Matthew 6, don't take, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear, for your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. God gives you everything that you need. So doesn't it by rights all belong to God anyway? So the talent that the Lord has given to us is way more than just a few spiritual gifts or abilities. It's everything. It's the totality of who we are. Listen in 1 Corinthians 4.17. This is how Paul spoke of other people in his life. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Remember, Paul later said in the book of Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Timothy, he says, I'm sending Timothy to you, and listen, there, I have no one else faithful than him. He's the only one I have who I can send to you. He's a faithful man. Ephesians 6, he speaks of Tychicus. But that you may know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and a faithful minister of the Lord, he will make all things known to you. And then Epaphras, he speaks of another brother. He says, Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Colossians 4, 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. See, these are not just things that were thrown around as titles or descriptors. This is speaking of truth. This is speaking of character. And notice what Paul said as we bring this part on faithfulness to an end about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And, and just try to imagine saying these words, okay, writing them down for others to read. And I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul's sitting there saying, the Lord somehow ministered to him that he was faithful, that he, Paul, was faithful. And Jesus was speaking to his heart, I'm putting you into the ministry because I'm considering you a faithful man or a faithful woman. Wow. Now, Paul takes that faithfulness that Jesus invested in him. And in 2 Timothy, the next letter, he says, And the things that you've heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, faithfulness is something we need to pass along to others. This is a part of the talent. Faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And notice the Lord, he says here, back to the Matthew passage, well done, good and faithful servant. Servant is a slave. We belong to a master. You are not your own, you are bought with a price. And he says, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid 
And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own interest. Now, the Lord looked at this servant, the third servant, the one who was given one talent according to his ability. And certainly the Lord knew that he, was, he could do something with the one. And so he gave it to him, expecting something in return. One person expressed this. I just had to write this down. F.B. Meyer wrote this. Uh, this is his thinking as he thinks about this servant. Like, this is what was going on in that servant's mind saying to himself, well, I can do very little. It will not make much difference if I do nothing. I shall not be missed. My tiny push is not needed to turn the scale. Isn't this how we think of ourselves sometimes? We think, well, who am I? We don't vote sometimes because, well, it's just one vote. Your vote matters. What about... Well, I'm not going to speak up and say anything. Who am I? I'm not a persuasive person. I'm not a person given to oration. I don't know how to say things. Sure you do. God's given you a voice. He's given you a mind. He's put his Holy Spirit within you. You know the gospel because you believed it and got saved. You don't have to be an apologist. Just tell somebody who Jesus is and how you got saved. Give them your testimony. If you can't do much, read John 3.16. Keep it on a 3 by 5 card. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hey, what are you going to do with that? That's all you need to do. Maybe you've only been given one talent. But is 20 years wage insignificant in, in terms of the, ter- the terms of the parable? So Jesus said in this parable, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, again, this is a parable. This is speaking of rewards. It does make you wonder if this person who had no fruit in his life even knew the Lord. I can't answer that question. It does make, sort of begs the question. But the idea here between these two parables, this idea of being ready, readiness, preparedness, and then the talents, faithfulness, bearing fruit, It calls us to think about these things as Jesus is saying these things in the context of being ready. Being ready for his coming if we're living in the church age and if you're living in the time of the tribulation, are you getting ready for his second coming? Do we understand that the Lord is just around the corner? He's standing just outside the door. I've said this before, but uh, probably is don't remember it, or it's probably been many years since I said this, but when I was in high school, and I'll close with this, I knew the Lord. I'd been born again when I was somewhere around eight or ten years old. 
And I was, I was doing all the wrong things in high school. I was having my wilderness wandering years in high school. And I was at my friend's house and we used to always party together. And so I was using his, his restroom, his bathroom. And his mom was a believer. She was a strong believer. She loved the Lord. And I knew this. And anybody ever see Leave it to Beaver? When I was at his house, I was, I was the, the, the Wally, you know, hello, Mrs. Cleaver, how are you today? That was me when I went to his house. So I go into the bathroom, and I al- almost hated going in there because right over the toilet paper, she had this plaque, and it read something like this, and you couldn't use the toilet paper without seeing it. Be nowhere that you wouldn't want to be when Jesus returns. Be doing nothing that you wouldn't want to be doing when Jesus returns, right? And uh, if I was at his house, it was because we were going out to party. And I saw that every time, and it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see, God has his ways. So ladies, there's your license to go to Hobby Lobby and do some decorating. But those kinds of things make a difference. And that was something that God used along the way in my life. And it was like this prick of the Holy Spirit in my conscience as I was going out and doing things that I knew that I shouldn't have been doing. And it wasn't until many years later when I got to college and you know, came back to the Lord through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ and other faithful believers and God began to work in my life. So we do go through times, don't we, of fruitlessness. We go through times where we're not walking with the Lord. But let all these things, let these two parables serve as a reminder to you. Let it be like that plaque over the toilet paper in this lady's house. Saying, hey, look, get ready. The coming of the Lord's at hand. And we should always be ready. None of this is meant, by the way, I don't think, to make anyone feel condemned or anything like that. This is the word of God. The word of God for believers is to sort of quicken us, isn't it? It's it's to to make us sort of take note and say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to change in my life? The Lord's brought perhaps correction. What am I going to do with that correction? You know, sometimes when we don't know what to do, we go to somebody who's wise and we, you know, for advice and counsel. Hey, what do you think I should do? Well, God's just told us what he thinks we should do. But see, when God tells us what he thinks we should do, it's not an option. Well, you can do this if you feel like it or not. This, this is the Lord speaking. This is the best advice you and I can ever get, what God says. So God says, be ready, be prepared, be faithful. Allow me to bear fruit in and through your life. How do you do that? You abide in Christ. You read the word, you pray, you seek his face. You don't have to be a learned person. You don't have to be a scholar. Just open the book and read and let God speak. And he will give you vision. He will give you hope. He will give you purpose. He will reveal to you what your gifts and your talents are. Now, certainly for every one of us, he has given to us a deposit. He's given to us a trust. And that trust is the gospel. What are we going to do with it? And how will it bear fruit in and through my life and in and through your life? Because one day when we all stand before the Lord, whether it's at the Bema seat of Christ, or for those who don't know Christ, worse, for those who stand at the great white throne, but for us as believers, when we stand before Christ, he will give us our rewards. And for some of us, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think the idea is this, if you want to hear those words, 
then be a good and a faithful servant. Amen. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for ministering to us and speaking to us. Lord, there may be some among us this morning who don't know you, who've never trusted in you. And so for them, we would say, believe the gospel. As we just read John three sixteen, that you have loved us. You have sent your son. And your son, Jesus, is showing us the way to the Father. And he has brought forgiveness and restoration and hope and healing. And so, Lord, for any who don't know you or who are unsure, I pray that in this very moment they would just open their heart to you and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Come in. And I repent. I turn from my sin and I want to know you. I want to be forgiven. I want to walk with you. I'm tired of doing it on my own. And in this moment, Lord, for them, would you confirm it? And may they be able to say now that, Lord Jesus, you are my Lord. You're my Savior. And for those of us this morning, Lord, who perhaps have been quickened by all these things, we pray we would take them to heart and we would be prepared and watchful and ready and faithful. And that these would be words that could describe us because of the path that you've set us upon now. And we long, Lord, we desire to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, how we long for that. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.